Church would like to welcome you to Complete in Christ with Matthew Gray. In this message series, Matthew explores the biblical truth of living in the divine inheritance. So I wanted to start off um, giving a little context. This is Paul writing to the Colossians, the church in Colossae, and these are New Testament believers. So Paul is essentially writing to believers everywhere. He's writing to people who are under the New Covenant. And he starts off by telling the good things he's heard about them, and then he says that he and um, he and the others have been praying for them, um, starting off in verse 9. And then we'll pick it up in verse 10. That ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father who has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And so what Paul is doing here is he's kind of going backwards. He's starting off with what he's praying that you will live like, as in he says, walk worthy of the Lord and talking about the inheritance that we've mentioned in the uh, other reality series. And then he goes through why um, we are able to do that, ending with verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So we're as we go through this series, we'll take these verses bit by bit and kind of work our way backwards from why we are able to walk worthy of the Lord to getting to what that means and what that brings about. So in verse 14, it says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And I like to go back and, and read the definitions of these words, because when we use them a lot, we tend to kind of minimize their impact or what they mean. So I went back and I looked through some of the definitions of redemption. And um, what this meant originally was a releasing caused by the paying of ransom. And that's what Jesus did. He died on the cross and paid a price that we couldn't pay because he was the innocent lamb of God. And he took away our sin through that, and we'll get to that a little bit later. And then it's also translated as deliverance, liberation, being free. Um, And that's not something we always think about when we use the word redemption. And so the main point that I want to get across here with this verse is, first, that we are redeemed. And you may say, well, we already know that. Well, we are going to go through that in detail so that we know without a shadow of a doubt who we are in Christ. We are delivered. We are free. We are liberated. And we have been released. Um, And this is talking to us. Paul is talking to the New Testament saints. And so to get a really good perspective out of this, I want to go through kind of how we've thought of sin over um, the period of since sin began. And starting off in the Old Covenant. So starting off in Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, this is where Paul is writing to the Jewish people who... Um, and he uses a lot of parallels between the law and what they have done and how Jesus is now our high priest and how he's redeemed us. And so he's talking in terms that they would understand. So he's talking about the Old Covenant here to people who lived under the Old Covenant and who were living under it in their lifetimes. So in Hebrews 9.22, he's talking about how um, the blood of the New Testament compares to the blood of the animals that was used for sacrifices in the Old Testament. In verse 22, he says, And almost all things are by the law 
purged with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. So this is referring to the Old Covenant where they'd have to go every year, kill innocent animals to cover their sins that they committed over the past year to be at least sufficiently covered for God to abide them or to uh, put up with them for another year or so. And then we go down to chapter 10, starting off in verse 1. It says, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make comers thereunto perfect. So what this verse is saying, even though they would come every year and they would sacrifice innocent lambs, which would cover their sins, it didn't make them perfect. All it did was cover over what they'd done. It was like if we had, um, I don't know, a spill of like lemonade or juice here on the floor and we just put paper towels over it, that doesn't mean it's not there. It just means we're covering it over. And every year we go, we pour more stuff on it, we just cover it over in paper towels every year. That doesn't make it go away. And it doesn't make the floor clean. It just covers over it. So that's what the Old Testament was doing, uh, the Old Test or the, or the law was doing, is it just cover over their sins for the year. And this is what this verse is saying, is that even though it was done each year, it didn't make them perfect, it didn't make them clean. Then verse 2, it says, For then they would not have ceased to be offered. Uh, so this is saying if they had made them clean, they would have just stopped offering the sins. So it's putting this point further of it's not actually making them clean. Otherwise, they would only have to sacrifice once and be done with it. Because that the worshipers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. They wouldn't even remember the sins or be aware of the sins because they're gone. Verse 3, but in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. So every time they go and make sacrifices, they are reminded of all the evil, all the sin that they've done, which keeps them in a mindset of condemnation, of knowing that they have fallen short, that they aren't worthy of the Lord, and that they are sinful human beings. And that's what the law was to do, was to show people that they needed a Savior and that they couldn't do it on their own. And then verse 4, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. So there was no way out, there was no hope, just go every year and cover over your sins um, for God to kind of put up with you. And in verse 922, in, uh, 922, which we read earlier, it talks about um, that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission for the sins. And this term remission is translated pardon or letting them go. So going and, and doing these sacrifices and using that blood to cover over was like God saying, okay, I'm going to let it go this year. Like you're still responsible for it. You're still the one who did it. You're still guilty, but I'm going to let it go. And so that's what the sacrifices did. Um, and I kind of want to compare this to something a little bit more familiar with us because it's hard to see in the other reality sometimes with our physical eyes and we use our flesh for so much. This would be like if you had a criminal record and let's say you'd, I don't know, petty theft or um, speeding or something, it could be anything. When you pay your fine or you serve your jail time or you do anything that, anything um, that the law requires you to do, that doesn't mean that goes off your record. That stays on your record, just like a driving record. Whenever you get speeding, pulled over, ticket for whatever reason, it goes on your record. And so you can pay the fine, you can do whatever penalty, uh, do whatever penalty they've given you, but that stays there. So that's kind of like what the law was, is even though you're going and you're doing these sacrifices, your record as a sinner 
was still there, still intact, and grew every year. So it kept people conscious of the fact that they were sinners. And you say, well, that's Old Covenant, and that is Old Covenant. So let's talk about the New Covenant. Let's go to 1 John chapter 1. And we'll start in verses 5, uh, start in verse 5 and go through verse 9. It says, This then is the message which we have heard of him, talking about Jesus, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the verses I want to highlight here are 7 and 9. In 7 it says that the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. And the thing I want to point out here is cleanseth. That's a present tense word. That means it's continually cleansing us. Um, And we'll get into that a little bit later um, when we talk about how specifically that happens. And then verse 9 where it says that he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So now that we have become his children and accepted him, through what he did on the cross, he has cleansed us from our sins and we are now clean. What the law couldn't do, he's taken away our sin. He's cleaned the floor. There's nothing there anymore. So in verse 7, how he does this is what we talked about in the other reality. You are given a new spirit, the spirit of God, when you accept Jesus into your life and accept him as your savior. And we talked about how your spirit cannot sin. So your spirit is perfect. It is Jesus Christ living in you. And that's the essentially the same thing as wiping your criminal record clean. It's gone. It's not there anymore. It's not attached to you. And then how the question is, how, how does this happen? How can... Jesus just wipe away our record um, when we're the ones who sinned. And I know you guys know the answer to this, so we'll just review this rather quickly. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that, you don't have to turn there, this is, we're just going there really quick. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So he took Jesus, who is innocent, who lived as a man, who never committed any sin, whether it be Uh, dwelling on thoughts that weren't of God, whether it means doing everything that God told him to do, because sin is also just refusing to do what God tells you to do. He lived his life in perfect accordance with the will of God, and he paid the price for our sin. And so he was the sacrifice, the innocent blood, to be made sin for us so that we now inherit Jesus's clean record. And then in verse 8... Um, If we go back to 1 John 1, verse 8, it says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And this used to confuse me, because it's just said that Jesus Christ, uh, his blood, has cleansed us from all sin. Yet it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So which is true? Um, And then I realized I was looking at it the wrong way. Jesus, the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from all sin, but if we haven't accepted that and we say, well, I don't need Jesus because I don't have any sin, then we're deceiving ourselves because we all have not lived in the will of God at some point in our lives. And so therefore, if we say, I don't need it, 
then we're deceiving ourselves. And we're not walking in the truth. And then it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. If we acknowledge that what we did is sin, then he will forgive us of those sins. And I want to make sure that we have the right idea of confess. Um, When I looked up the definition of this word, it says to say the same thing as another. So if God is saying this is sin, then I'm saying it's sin. There should never be any disconnect there. If God says it's sin, well, I'm not sure if it was sin because of circumstances or I thought something else. If God says it's sin, I say it's sin, and I acknowledge that I sinned. Or it's also to agree, to assent due, to not deny. Um, And I want to talk about this idea of confession in a little more detail um, in just a little bit. But I want to use a little bit of an object lesson to kind of demonstrate this, because I feel like we believe this, to some extent, but we don't always realize the full extent of what it means. So, for instance, in the Old Testament, and this little post note here is going to represent sin. In the Old Testament, if I sinned, my sin was on me, right? I sinned, I'm guilty, etc. And then what they do every year is they would take the blood of innocent animals and cover their sin, but you can still tell that I sinned because it's just covered over. It's still there. It's still attached to me. And so every year I would sin some more, put some more sin on myself, go, sacrifice, cover some more over. And then you would see everything that I've done. And I would be reminded every time that I sinned that I'm guilty. I'm condemned. And so that was the fault of the Old Covenant. And Jesus and Paul talked about it a good bit, is the law wasn't perfect, and in itself it actually created sin because it made us aware that what we were doing was wrong and kept it kept us in remembrance of it all the time. So we walked around living guilty, living condemned, and that's not what Jesus want not the way God wanted us to live. So then Jesus came, lived the perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, and so a lot of us think about it this way now. We think, okay, I have this sin on me, and Jesus, I want you to forgive me. So this is at the, at the point of um, asking Jesus for the first time to come into our lives, to save us, to set us free, um, to forgive our sins. So we go, okay, I have these sins on me, so I'm going to go over to the cross, and I'm going to put my sin on the cross, and thank you, Jesus, that you forgave my sins. Oh, I, I sinned again. Jesus, please forgive me. Um, I know you bore my sins on the cross. And so now I know that my sins are on the cross and Jesus paid. Oh, I sinned again. I'm sorry, Jesus. Um, I know you'll forgive me for what I did. Um, But I'm living condemned because I know that every time I sin, I need to go ask forgiveness. And we do need to confess and we do need to ask. Oh, I sinned again. I'm sorry. Um, Jesus, please forgive me. Um, And let's say each one of these represents a hundred times in a year. So I've already sinned. Oh, Jesus, I'm so sorry. I sinned again. And, and what we do is we start to think, oh gosh, I'm filling up the cross. I'm every, we start to feel condemned and humiliated just for asking for forgiveness a lot of times. So we'll, we'll, Jesus, I'm so sorry, Lord. I know this is the hundredth millionth time I've sinned, but can you please forgive me this time? And, and we know that Jesus is going to forgive our sins. And then sometimes when I did something really stupid or really something that I know was completely outside the will of God, 
I'm not even going to ask forgiveness this time. And I know we don't acknowledge this a lot, but I feel like at least sometimes I would do this, is just say, I know that was wrong, but I deserve the consequences of that. I stepped out of the will of God. That was completely and utterly wrong. And so I, I know there are going to be consequences for that. So, Lord, I know I'm still saved. I'm still um, delivered. Um, but we even bear our own sins sometimes through what we call kind of false humility. I know I messed up, but I know there are consequences, and that's just the nature of sin. You sin, you get, there's consequences. Um, and if you asked us, or asked me, uh, when I used to think about the sin this way, I would say, yes, Jesus has paid for all my sins, and I'm still going to heaven, and I'm still um, saved and set free, set free. But I would keep going and thinking that I'm kind of, filling up the cross, Jesus must be tired of forgiving me by now. And we live guilty and condemned and not free. And so the reality is this isn't the picture of forgiveness the way it truly is. When we go and we ask Jesus into our hearts to forgive us, oh, my post-it notes are too sticky, Anyway, what we'll do is we'll cover them over because they've been cleansed, right? So imagine this is invisible now because he's washed away our sins. And we sing songs about that, and we've read scriptures about how Jesus has washed us in his blood and cleansed us from our sins and how we've been made clean. But do we really... Think about it this way, of when we ask for forgiveness, Jesus no longer, God chooses not to remember it anymore. And there's actually scripture verses that uh, go along with this. If we go to Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 8 verse 12, it says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins, and their iniquities I will remember no more. So what this means is when we go and we ask forgiveness for anything that we've done outside the will of God, God says, okay, I forgive you, and he forgets it. Not because his memory bank is over uh, capacity or filled up, but because he chooses not to remember it anymore. He chooses not to attach it to our name or our rap sheet or our you know whatever you want to call it, And so he no longer remembers that sin. And so what happens is when I go and I say, okay, God, I stepped out of your your will and I'm I'm asking you to forgive my sin, there's nothing else here. It's like as if I'm going to ask forgiveness for the very first time for the only thing I've ever done wrong in God's eyes. Now, I know that I've sinned in the past, and so I'm holding myself in condemnation because I'm choosing to remember all these things that God's forgotten. And the answer is, the real question is, why are we doing that? Why do we hold ourselves in remembrance of things that God chooses to forget? And uh, I believe it's in James where he talks about, I may be citing this wrong, where he talks about what to set your mind on, everything that's good, that's pure, that's lovely, that's of God, basically. Everything that you need to be thinking about. And nowhere does he mention your past sins, Nowhere does he mention what you've done in the past. He doesn't want you to remember that. Now, do you get into pride and say, well, I have no sin? No, we just talked about in 1 John where it says, if you say we have no sin, um, 
then you're not walking in the truth. And that's if you say, well, right now I'm living perfectly in the will of God. I can never do anything wrong. Um, this is The point is that we need to, when we mess up or when we go outside of the will of God, we need to acknowledge that and say, Lord, I know I went outside the will of God, and so I'm asking for your forgiveness, and then I know once you forgive me, we both can forget it and move on and live according to how you would want us to live. And then he says it again, uh, just to make the point even stronger, in chapter 10, verse 16 and 17. He says, This is the covenant that I will make with them, that after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. And their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. So each time we go and we confess our sin and say, I've stepped out of the will of God, will you please forgive me? That's the very first time in his mind that we've sinned. So we don't need to live with this guilty conscience thinking about our sin. But the important key to all of this is what we say, is our testimony. So let's go to Matthew chapter 12. And we're going to look at verses 30. 34 through 37. And this is where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. Um, he's, been, he's been berating them for basically speaking evil and or speaking, trying to speak good things when there's evil in their hearts and they're being um, inconsistent. And he's talking about how he's basically rebuking them. And then in verse 34, he says, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, and they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. And it's interesting enough, justified, uh, along with meaning innocent, free, is translated as be righteous. So by your words will you be righteous. And think of how many times we say, oh, I'm just an old sinner, or oh, I'm, I'm just not perfect, I, I'm not living in the will of God, I'm a sorry old person, we have to be careful because it says, by these words will we be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Whatever you speak out of your mouth is what you believe in your heart. So if you believe that I am an old sinner and I have this long track record of sin that I am guilty of and will live in condemnation under, that's what you'll have. So we need to be aware of the words we speak and know that we no longer have that guilty track record. I think a good way to illustrate this would be to think of a court of law. So think of, you know, you've seen it on TV, Judge Judy, or anything like that. <laughs> um, let's think about it this way. The enemy, they call, the Bible calls him the accuser, right? He goes around accusing not only uh, the unbelievers but the believers um, of things that they've done or things that he wants them to do. Um, 
So he's the accuser of us, and he's going around. He's the prosecutor. He's trying to get you condemned. He's trying to get judgment put on you. And he has no mercy. He's going to do it as much as he can, as often as he can, because he wants death for you. He wants destruction for you. He wants bondage for you. And then on the other side, we have Jesus, who is our advocate, right? The Bible calls him that as well. And so he's representing us. He's the one who is saying, no, they don't deserve punishment. I died on the cross. I took their sin for them so that they can live as I want them to live. And the judge is God. Isn't he the the only righteous judge of the world? And so the devil goes up there. He's trying to accuse you of everything that you've done. You've, You've lied. You've cheated. You've disobeyed God. You've done all these things. And then Jesus goes up there. He's your attorney. He goes, you know, judge, my father. Um, we have, you know, the, the, uh, the uh, accused here, your son, your daughter. Um, and I say that they're innocent because I have submitted the evidence, the blood of Jesus, uh, my blood, which was innocent, which is for them to pay for their sins. So they aren't guilty. So Jesus is the best advocate you could ever have. Did anybody else want another attorney other than Jesus? Any hands? No? Okay, good. So we agree that Jesus is the best attorney, the best advocate we could ever want, right? The judge is your father. Is this looking okay now? Is this looking like it's going to turn out okay? The, The prosecutor is the enemy of God, of Jesus, who has already been defeated, who's already lost all the power he ever had, and the only power he has is deception. So what could go wrong? You. That's what could go wrong. And and think about it this way. In In our court system, what's the most powerful piece of evidence in our court system? Testimony of the person accused. It doesn't matter what the attorney says, how great a case he makes that you were across the globe in another place at another time doing something completely else with 500 witnesses. But if you go up there and you admit that you did it, you're guilty. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. You're guilty. And that's what we, the part we have to play is we have to give our testimony. So many times, the enemy is saying, well, you lied, you cheated, you did this wrong, Um, you're guilty, you're condemned, admit it. And we go, oh, God, I did it, I'm so sorry, Lord. And so we go and we put, oh, please, God, forgive us, oh, Lord, I know I did wrong. And we go put our sin on the cross next to our hundred million other sins that we think we have up there, and we just admit to our guilt. Yes, I, I know, I, I, I sinned and I need to bear the consequences. And I want to point out the difference between confess, which First John talks about, which is agreeing with God that that was sin, versus testifying that we are guilty, that we are unrighteousness. And you may say, well, that's, that's being, that's being um, uh, humble in saying that, you know, yes, I'm acknowledging, I, I, I want to, you know, acknowledge that I did wrong, I want to pay penance. Um, but that's not what Jesus died for you to do. He, he wants you to confess and agree with him that sin is sin, but he paid the consequences. 
So any penance you're doing is saying, yeah, Jesus, that's nice. You died on the cross for me. Thank you. But I feel like I need to do a little more. Like, that wasn't quite enough. And we don't think about it that way, but that's what it is, is saying the cross wasn't enough, which isn't just bad logic and and not understanding what Jesus did for you. It's disrespectful to the cross. He paid a terrible price. And to say that you, in your fallen human state, can add anything to that is completely untrue and not walking in the truth. And so our testimony is very, very important in that we can't go and say, yes, I deserve any consequences or punishment, even though that sounds humble, is that's not what Jesus desires for you, and it's not what he paid a terrible price for you to do. And so if you get up there on the witness stand and you give in to the enemy and start confessing all that you've done and how it's all your fault and how what a terrible person you are, you're disrespecting what Jesus did. And so what we are supposed to be doing is admitting that, yes, it's sin. So if the enemy comes up, did you do this? Did you lie? Yes, I did. Wasn't that wrong? Wasn't that opposite the word of God and what God wants you to do? Because he'll quote scripture to you. Yes, it was. I agree. As the witness, I agree that I did it wrong and it, uh, it deserves punishment, and, um, I'm, and I did that, and it was outside of the will of God. So you deserve to be punished. No. <laughs> Wait, you just said that you did it. Did you, did you lie to your, I don't know, your friend the, on Thursday, February 3rd, 2017? Yes, I did. Were you there that night at their house? Speaking to them, yes, I was. And you lied to them, yes, I did. And that's wrong, yes, it is. So you deserve to be punished. No, no, I'm innocent because Jesus paid for that. And so if I confess that once I've done it and I say, Jesus, that lie was wrong, I'm sorry. Um, can you please forgive me? And I know you will. And he says, yes, I'll forgive you. Don't, no, learn from this. Don't do it again. Then that's gone. On, to the, on, on with life on with walking with what Jesus told me to do. And so we have to get in this mindset of my testimony matters and it needs to line up with what Jesus' testimony to me is. Because if I get up there and I say the wrong thing, that's the most important thing in what I can do. If I get up there and I testify against myself, that's going to counteract anything Jesus already did for me. So our words are keys to receiving this righteousness. And what we need to remember is that we have been cleansed. We've been clean. And so we're not walking around as dirty old sinners. We've been cleansed. And so we need to live in that. Um, I think I want to go a little further um, in this. I I went through that a little bit quicker than I thought it would. Last time... um, I gave a message. It took a lot longer than I thought, so I tried to plan conservatively. But we can go farther than uh, the notes say, right? There's still plenty of blank space. I know that's not what you're used to, um, but there's there's no there's no right or wrong way in doing that. Um, so I, we we can finish early, and we will finish early probably because I don't think we're going to get to all of this. Um, but that, that went, you must be receiving very well if I, if I wasn't supposed to dwell on any of that um, for a 
great length of time. All right. <laughs> so let's go on to why does this matter? Why are we made righteous? Um, it's not just so that we can have a warm, fuzzy feeling and uh, sit in our you know, chair and say, oh, thank the Lord, I'm righteous. I'm righteous and I'm clean and that's the end of that. No, we're made righteous for a purpose. And for this purpose, let's turn to Romans chapter 8. Chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. And it says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so, be that the Spirit of God dwell in you, which we agree, we talked about in the other reality, the Spirit of God is in you, it's sinless, it can't sin, it's perfect, it's Jesus um, living in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. We can agree that if you don't have the Spirit, you're not a child of God. And if Christ be in you, your body is dead because of sin. I love that part. We'll get to that a little bit later. Maybe not today. Um, but that your body is dead to sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And then let's go down to 16 and 17. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So we'd all agree we're children of God, right? If we're children of God, then we're heirs. The children are the heirs, usually of whatever the parent is giving away. Um, and then it, we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So we have the same inheritance that Jesus has. If so, then we suffer with him and we may be also glorified with him. So the point of being made righteous, as it says in verse 10, that the spirit is life because of righteousness, the point of being made righteous is living like the inheritance that Jesus provided belongs to you. Because think, if I'm living and I think I'm unrighteous and I have this long rap sheet, long criminal record, long record of being a sinner, and I, in my mind, I'm unrighteous, I don't believe I deserve what Jesus gave me. I'm not worthy of it. And that's where if you go back to Colossians, our text, it says walk worthy of the Lord. So if I'm thinking I'm unrighteous, I'm not walking worthy. And so I don't think that the inheritance that he provided, which includes finances, includes healing, then I'm not going to think that belongs to me, that I deserve it. And that's strong language, but Jesus died so you can deserve it. This isn't thinking I deserve it in what I've done. Everything here relates back to the cross and what Jesus said. I only deserve it. It only belongs to me because it belongs to Jesus. Not me. It belongs to Jesus. And if you think back through situations in your life, and I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. If anything, I'm talking about myself. When you're sick and you're laying there and you know that Jesus has paid the price for your, for your healing and he wants you to be healed, the biggest impediment to receiving that healing a lot of times is you thinking you deserve it. Whether it's something you've done in the recent past, whether it's, oh, I was unwise and I went out and went to school with a bunch of sick people or I wasn't washing my hands thoroughly enough. I, or maybe it was something that I think is something spiritual, even though I know God doesn't punish me, I've opened myself up by living in sin, then I think I deserve it, even though I may say, I may you know, try to speak out of my mouth that you know, by his stripes I'm healed. You have to know that you don't deserve it. Even if you've done something, even if you've sinned in the recent past in something related to that area, 
and you're saying, I agree that this is sin, and that there are consequences to sin, we can agree there are consequences to sin, but Jesus paid for those consequences too. So even though I did something that was sinful, that was outside of the will of God, I don't have to receive the consequences that go with it. And that may seem unfair, and it is unfair because the person who sinned isn't paying the price for it. But Jesus paid the price for it. So who am I to argue with what's just with him? Why would I go and tell him, that's not fair, I need to bear it. I'm the one who did the wrong, I need to sin. Well, Jesus apparently, and God apparently thought it was fair for him to pay for your sins because he loves you so much that he paid for that. So if you say, I deserve the consequences, again, that's disrespecting what he did for you. So the importance of understanding of that why you are made righteous is that you need to live like the inheritance belongs to you, like you deserve the finance, uh, financial uh, state of being that Jesus wants you to live in. You deserve the healing that Jesus paid for you. You deserve the deliverance from any bondage that um, has been holding you down because Jesus has paid for all those things. And if it belongs to him, it belongs to you. So let's go back to our text, Colossians 1.12. And this is how it, it kind of goes back piece by piece to, to our text um, scripture. Verse 12, it says, Giving thanks unto the Father who has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And this language is a little bit harder to understand. We don't use meet in that uh, context a lot. But this is basically uh, translated as to be able. So, which he has made us able to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. In our own flesh, the sacrifices we did only covered our sins. So we weren't, we couldn't make ourselves clean, which we talked about in Hebrews. So God has made us able, through the sacrifice of his son, to be partakers of the inheritance. So now we deserve that, and it belongs to us. And again, this goes back to our words matter. If you go around and you say, well, I'm, I'm guilty of this and I, I, deserve, um, I deserve the consequences of what I've done, or if you even don't say anything at all, you're not claiming what Jesus paid for you to have. And I've got a little bit deeper of a definition of justify here. It says, to render righteous. I love this definition. To render righteous or such as he ought to be. So Jesus paid the price, so I ought to be Righteous, And I love that because a lot of times we don't live in our flesh righteously. We don't live in accordance with what God wants us to do. But we ought to be living righteously because the spirit which Jesus gave to us and is Jesus living in us is righteous. So we ought to be living righteous. So justified means to render righteous or such as he ought to be. Or to show, exhibit one to be righteous as he is and wishes himself to be considered. I want to be considered righteous. So therefore, I'm going to live righteously because Jesus paid the price for me to be righteous. So if he, if he is making me righteous, I don't want to live sinfully or underneath what he gave me. So I want to live um, righteously. And... One of the main things that we forget here is that these are, or this is something that we have to speak out of our mouth. This isn't something we can just uh, think about or know about. We have to testify of it 
Because if you, te- if you don't testify, then that's showing that you don't believe it. Because we talked about in Matthew how the words that come out of your mouth show what's in your heart. So if you're not speaking it, then you're not believing it in your heart. And then the last note that I have here is you have to resist the devil to make him flee. But if you testify that you are unrighteousness and deserve punishment, you are claiming it for yourself. And we have read before in James, um, verse 4 through 7, you don't have to go, uh, for, verse 4 7, and you don't have to go here, is that you have to resist the devil to make him flee. So if he's standing there accusing you, then you have to say, no, yes, I did that. Yes, I committed sin, but I'm not deserving of the punishment that would go along with it. So, again, I'm, I'm kind of surprised at how fast this is going, but I guess I'll stop there for now. And what we're going to talk about next week is what living in that inheritance looks like. And I guess I'll give you a little bit of a hint of what's coming with that is uh, Matthew 5.48, if you want to turn there. Like I said, I guess this just means you guys are receiving it very quickly because the last time I felt like I was supposed to kind of hover on a couple of different things and we're just moving right along. So uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Matthew 5, 48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And this is a verse that I often skipped over when I was reading through because Jesus is the only one who could live perfectly. You know, we all know that Jesus is the only perfect human being who came, lived, died. And so therefore, you know, we all know Jesus is the only perfect. We're not perfect. We can't live perfectly. And so I always just kind of skipped over this verse because I'm like, I don't really know what that means. He said, be, you know, perfect. It must mean something else. Um... So we'll, we'll kind of skip on over that. Um, but I was, I was studying about how we are made righteous. Uh, it kind of led me, the Spirit kind of led me to this, as that we are supposed to live perfect. And I almost named the, the series this, but then the Spirit told me to name it something else because I don't want to scare everybody away before they even come and listen to the first message. Of This, this message really could be called, Be Ye Perfect. Because if we're righteous through what Jesus paid for us to be, if we're complete, if we are free from sin and we are able to walk in these different areas, then what's our excuse for not doing so all the time? And so what we're going to get into next week is how, how do we live that way? Is it possible to live that way? Um, are we expected to live that way? And the implications that come from that. So be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven. That's not that, This kind of uh, solidifies what he's saying. Is I'm not just kidding around here. I'm not just saying be perfect and leave you to think of a way out. But even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. So what we're going to do next uh, week is go through some different verses that also talk about being perfect. What as your Father means and how this relates back to all the things in the other reality. And is this actually possible? How can we live that way? Are there people who live that way? Um, and is that something that we can be working towards? So with that, let's close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for uh, your word. Thank you that it's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. 
Thank you for the understanding of your word, the revelation of your word. Thank you for showing us things in our lives that um, you would like us to change, for showing us how to walk that out, showing us how to live. Thank you for listening to this message by Matthew Gray. For more messages by Matthew Gray or for more information about Hope Church, please go to www.hopechurchnc.org. That's www.hopechurchnc.org.